What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, results in Georgia and relations with China with former Fed Governor Kevin Warsh. I don't think we should be too naive about what's happening. This is a rivalry that will define our economy, theirs, and frankly, war and peace over the course of the next generation. Palantir co-founder and 8VC founding partner Joe Lonsdale on American politics and the big tech crackdown around the globe. There's a populist movement on both the right and the left come after the big tech companies. Plus, got oat milk. Vegan brand Oatly is gearing up for a public market debut. The dude loves his white Russian. I mean, it, it, you got to use some milk for that or cream. It's Wednesday, January 6th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan, along with uh, Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And uh, Becky, I kind of stole your shot. You haven't really noticed, I don't think. I got your flag back no, there. No, I noticed. I noticed. It I looks noticed. great. You're, you're, you're gone as soon as we're back. Mice is a... You can have I it temporarily. I don't think so. Uh, it, cat's away. Oh, that's cat's what I'm told. Away. My, US. No, no, that's what I'm told. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm never moving back. If you snooze, you lose, Beck. I mean, we're, we're welcome here anytime. I've been back here since April. I'm not coming to your germs. <laughs> Only if you wear a mask. Cooties. Anyway. President Trump signed an executive order late yesterday banning transactions with eight Chinese software companies, including giants WeChat Pay and Alipay from Alibaba. Also, some troubling news out of Hong Kong. Police have arrested dozens of pro-democracy activists. Authorities claiming that they violated the new national security law that was passed less than a year ago. Kevin Warsh joins us right now. He's, of course, a former Fed governor and a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He had an op-ed in yesterday's Wall Street Journal that was titled Beijing's Bid for Financial Supremacy. And, and Kevin, it was timely yesterday, maybe even more timely today as we continue to get these headlines that are coming in. Um, you've been concerned about our competition with Beijing and, and, and maybe how it's heated up and changed because of what's happened with COVID. Their, their economy is doing pretty well right now. What do you think is happening? So, Becky, thanks for having me on. Uh, so I think, unfortunately, this is a subject that's timely every day over the last couple of years and likely every day over the next generation. Uh, China's new geopolitical adventurism, their speed and force and economic and geopolitics around the world has really marked this period. And I think it has a couple of reasons for having accelerated in the last year the pandemic that you rightly make note of. So the Chinese economy in 2020 was the strongest economy in the world among the big, uh, big countries. And uh, in addition, they see the U.S. as being vulnerable. They see our treasury market as being vulnerable. And they see, frankly, our economy, our system as being vulnerable. They think we're riding a tiger. Uh, and I'm afraid they also might be under the, the mistaken view they're riding a thoroughbred. So these are the challenges, Becky. This is the great geopolitical fight, the great power competition of the 21st century. So it's timely this morning, like most mornings. 
Yeah, this morning we're, we're actually watching the 10-year note pushing back above a 1% yield for the first time since March. That has people kind of sitting up and, and paying attention. They may want to hurt us when it comes to our Treasury markets, when it comes to a lot of other things, but they've been big, big owners of Treasuries for a very long time, uh, number one or number two uh, traditionally. Yeah, that, that's true, Becky. Historically, they have been they have been the most important buyer of treasury securities and dollar-denominated assets, both through official channels, through their foreign reserves and unofficial. But I would say that that trend seems to be changing. Now the, the big buyer, of course, of treasury securities is the Federal Reserve. And, uh, and the Federal Reserve in March of this year, in the deepest, darkest, scariest moment in markets from the pandemic, the Chinese looked like they effectively moved out of those securities like a lot of foreign buyers. The Fed had to show up and buy a trillion dollars of an assets in just three weeks' time. So there seems to be some material shift below the aggregates. And it looks to me as though two things are happening, Becky. Uh, treasure, excuse me, Chinese purchases of U.S. Treasuries uh, are dissipating, not in a way that would be probably too alarming because the Chinese don't want to suffer big losses on that. But secondly, and maybe most important, the Chinese are going to the big sovereign wealth funds, the big asset managers, and they're saying, come take your low-risk capital and invest in Chinese sovereign debt instead of U.S. treasuries. Because I think what the Chinese have figured out is they do not want to be reliant on the U.S. economic system, financial system, markets, because of announcements like you've made in the last couple mornings about Chinese telecoms being delisted and the rest. They feel uncomfortable being stuck with uh, a U.S.-dominated global economy, so they see what's happening in the U.S., including, for better or worse, the biggest shift in regime and fiscal and monetary policy, at least since Paul Volcker, and they decide to take their bat and bring it home. And so that's what they're trying to do is build out a separate market away from the U.S. It didn't start with President Trump, this bifurcation of the global economy. But at the same time, Becky, I don't expect it to end with uh, President Biden. You know, Kevin, that's kind of a lot to, to dig through. It, it, part of it sounds like their motivation is they want to be diversified. Um, they're worried about the type of spending that we've done here, uh, deficit spending. Part of it sounds like it's retaliation for some of the actions of the, the Trump administration. And you can watch it play out again just with the NYSE saying yesterday, never mind, we're not going to delist those three Chinese telecom companies. And today saying, oh, wait a second, uh, we may have to do that because Treasury Secretary Mnuchin called them reportedly um, and, and kind of put the pressure to them. How, how does this all play out? How much of this is a they just want to diversify like like anyone would uh, if you're looking at your portfolio? And how much of this is uh, a real kind of economic war? So so uh, uh, Secretary Kissinger is the diplomat, not a has been government bureaucrat like me. And I think he says we're in the foothills of a Cold War. Uh, I guess I'll say it a little, little less diplomatically. It's true they want to diversify, but I think they recognize that the 21st century has two great economic powers. And um, the relationship between China and the U.S. does not need to be zero sum, but it doesn't have to be positive sum either. And I think that what we should do is separate the tactics. There's a little tit for tat going on. Uh, uh, across the last couple of months of the end of the Trump administration, the beginning of the Biden administration, to be sure. So that happens a couple levels down inside the bureaucracies in China. But there's also a grand strategy. And the grand strategy for the Chinese, I think, is to be 
both diversified, but also to try to take allies and would-be allies of the United States and of the dollar and of the treasury market and try to win them over to their side. So I don't think we should be too, too naive about what's happening. This is a rivalry that will define our economy, theirs, and frankly, war and peace over the course of the next generation. So when I see things in the treasury market happening, which is really a new front in this great power rivalry, I think we have to take it very, very seriously. And you noted this morning, Becky, that treasury yields are now creeping above 1%. In any normal time with uh, a kind of different fiscal or monetary policy, with an economy in 2021 in the US that could grow high single digits, five, six, 7% or more, boy, those tre treasury yields still look very low. So the Chinese pitch to the world's investors is, do you really want a negative real return by investing in the US assets? Or do you want a positive return and start to cozy up to China by investing in, what's in, uh, in assets that are paying 200 basis points higher in China? For the world's asset managers, it's a tough decision, but I've noticed an open-mindedness to move capital into Beijing in the last six months that I frankly uh, found a bit surprising, even alarming, and it's something that's quite different than we witnessed a couple of years ago. Never mind in the crisis of 2008 or 9, when, when that crisis happened, U.S. Treasury yields fell dramatically. When this pandemic struck, Treasury yields in March, as you reported, went up about 75 basis points. That tells me that there's a bit of vulnerability in our treasury markets. And so policymakers need to think about that as a first order consequence of their policy, not something they can push aside. Hey, Kevin, um, I don't know if you can see yourself on TV, but right under you on the right hand corner uh, is a little what we call a bug in the business. Uh, and occasionally we are now showing uh, Bitcoin's price, which at one point this morning had crossed thirty five thousand in large part, I think, based on what's happening in Georgia and the idea that uh, we're going to continue to print a lot of money, there's going to be stimulus measures and, and, and the like. Um, where do you land on Bitcoin today? And does all of this make sense to you? So uh, the only thing I can see on my home Zoom is my ugly mug looking back. So I'm going to have to take your word for it, uh, Andrew, about what you're seeing. Um, so I, I just note something, which is Every asset price that the U.S. government doesn't control, that the Federal Reserve doesn't control, like the commodities, which Becky referenced earlier, like Bitcoin, which is in some sense the anti-government price, like gold, the barbarous relic that's been around for 5,000 years, those things are all going through the roof, whereas those assets which the Federal Reserve purports to control and has controlled for a better part of a decade, those look repressed. Those are holding in there. It's that distinction which I think the Chinese are pitching to the world's investors that's saying, look, something's happening and the treasury market's not reacting. Um, so I think that's part of, the, part of my narrative. On Bitcoin, it does make some sense to me, Andrew, in the following sense. Uh, the dollar is weakening. And after the elections overnight, I'd look for the dollar to continue to weaken against a large basket of currencies. And um, that's because of an incredibly aggressive Federal Reserve, which rightly or wrongly, I think will be more aggressive than the world's other central banks. Uh, and new fiscal policy, which we wouldn't have countenanced even under a full blue wave a decade ago, where right. we now have this idea that so long as you can cover your interest expense, the US government has nothing to worry about. There's a rather radical shift in monetary and fiscal policy. And to be candid, it's a bipartisan shift. 
I hear plenty of Democrats and Republicans saying the same tune, which is, oh, well, the Fed can just monetize this debt and make it go away. It's in that environment, Andrew, that I think we see commodities move higher and Bitcoin doing exactly what you described. Kevin, though, are you, are you on board with, with, with Bitcoin? I know Stan Druckenmiller uh, is now on board. I think when we've talked about Bitcoin in, in the past, uh, I think you, you had a, a, a perhaps a lesser view. I don't know if you have a different view today. So, uh, so uh, uh, Stan calls me his partner. I call him my boss. One of us is lying, but I'll let you figure out who, who's who in that, Andrew. Um, so I'd say... Um, I think that Bitcoin does make sense as part of a portfolio in this environment where you have the most fundamental shift, for example, in monetary policy since Paul Volcker. This is a big shift that we're seeing under the Powell Fed, rightly or wrongly. So I'm not surprised in a period of dollar weakness where Bitcoin's doing what it's doing. And I'd also suggest that part of the move in Bitcoin is taking some of the bid away from gold. I think if Bitcoin never existed, gold would be rallying even more right now. But I guess guess if you're under 40, Bitcoin is your new gold. So I think of Bitcoin as a lot of things, but it's certainly with every passing day getting new, new life as an alternative currency. And when you see the strength of the euro, the strength of the pound, the strength of the RMB, the Korean won, the Mexican peso, I guess we shouldn't be surprised to see the strength of Bitcoin as well. Hey, Kevin, just in terms of the spending that we've done to this point, the spending you might anticipate if the Democrats take control of the Senate. Um, We've watched the market kind of play out with some of these things today. You look at the Russell 2000, it's up by 3%, or at least it was a little earlier this morning on, I guess, the idea that there will be more spending, more stimulus that's coming. Um, The banks are responding well today because you've got the 10-year back above 1%. When is there a point where it's a concern to you? When is there a point where, okay, this is spending that can be done in an emergency situation? You've had Jay Powell say, if we're going to overshoot, he thinks that's okay right now. How how do you come down on any and all of that? Well, there's a lot there. Uh, Let me start on the fiscal side, Becky, which is um, uh, the biggest, most important stimulus, far more consequential than anything than Congress has passed going back to the CARES Act, is this vaccine, which you and your team have been reporting on. That vaccine is a 10 or $20 trillion stimulus in and of itself. Nothing can get this economy back faster and more efficiently than a vaccine that's out there that makes the, the, the virus non-existent or at least something we can live with. So that's the most powerful. And if what you're reporting is right, which is this vaccine is going to be in the broad U.S. population by end of the second quarter, beginning of the first quarter, I would say that the government distribution of stimulus isn't quite as effective as the power of vaccine to take the animal spirits, which have been all but dead, and have them come back to life. So that's where the energy, the focus should be. And thank goodness for the private sector, with some assistance, no doubt, from the government and accelerating that. That's incredibly powerful. In the old days, Becky, you would have a central bank look through uh, tough periods and say, well, if a couple of quarters out, This economy is going to be growing, according to their measure, 4 or 5%, according to my measure, even more than that. Then central banks would say, well, monetary policy acts with a long and variable lag, so there's not a ton we can do about the next few months. But that's not the musings I hear from the Federal Reserve, and that's certainly not what I hear from from Congress. I guess just as a final point, Becky, I'd say this. 
I think the level of debt to GDP in the U.S. should have us all concerned. Broadly speaking, debt to GDP in the U.S. today is what it was in Italy 12 or 14 months ago. And none of us thought that Italy was in great fiscal shape. There is a bill to pay. There are no free lunches. I must sound like the oldest, most has-been central banker to be on your air in a very long time. But when I hear the broad swath of the economics profession saying there's a new regime in fiscal policy, and so long as you can cover interest payments, there's nothing to worry about. And when I hear the world's central banks basically say debt monetization is what we do, I would say this is an experiment we've never run before, and I think it's got plenty of risks. So I'd put the emphasis for Congress on we're a rich and powerful nation. We care about the least well-off among us, and we want to help them in tough times. But that does not involve this kind of profligate spending when we're on the verge of a vaccine that's going to take an economy that had been uh, shut down and locked down and have it come to life with incredible animal spirits going for it. Kevin, you can join uh, the rest of us. The other three of us have been old cranks this morning as well, been waxing poetic about the good old days. It's great to see you. Thank you for your time today. Good to be with you all. Thank you. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Palantir co-founder turned venture capitalist Joe Lonsdale is looking past the pandemic for investing cues. People have realized there's an optimistic side of what's going to happen in the next 10 years, and there's a, there's a possibility of a roaring 20s, but there's, there's going to be, in the meantime, some regulation. We'll be right back. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. U.S. stock markets and investors are getting ready for a blue wave after a long night following Georgia's two Senate runoffs. And the news that Reverend Raphael Warnock is projected to win the special election, flipping a Republican seat and bringing Democrats one step closer to unified control of Congress as well as the White House. Here is apparent winner Raphael Warnock. We were told that we couldn't win this election. But tonight, we prove that with hope, hard work, and the people by our side, anything is possible. And in the other Senate runoff race, Democrat challenger John Ossoff was leading Republican Senator David Perdue with about 98% of the expected vote counted. John Ossoff declared victory Wednesday morning as counting continues. It is with humility that I thank the people of Georgia for electing me to serve you in the United States Senate. Thank you for the confidence and trust that you have placed in me. NBC News says that race is still too close to call at the time of this podcast being recorded. If Ossoff wins, the Senate will be evenly split 50-50, giving Vice President-elect Kamala Harris a potential tie-breaking vote. Democratic control of Congress would also give President-elect Joe Biden more leeway to enact his legislative priorities. Futures on the Nasdaq 100, dominated by tech stocks, were lower this morning during our TV broadcast as investors watched the results come in and considered Democratic leadership that could push for more regulation on the technology industry. Andrew Ross Sorkin spoke with tech investor and Palantir co-founder Joe Lonsdale about where he sees opportunity now. It's uh, great to see Joe Lonsdale. Uh, this morning. Joe, nice to see you. Um, morning, I want to get to some of your investments, including talking about what's happened to the Palantir stock, which has been on quite a run. Also, Wish, which I know uh, is a big investment for you. But when you're just looking at some of the big tech stocks that seem to be moving lower this morning, what do you ascribe it to? Well, this morning is probably tied to the election last night. People people tend to like dividing government a little better than when one side's in charge, especially when that side has a lot of people who are 
who are pretty unhappy with the tech world, I presume. And are, are you are you convinced, though, that um, if it really is a, a Democratic uh, blue wave, if you will, that there's going to be a significant regulation coming? Well, it's clearly not a full blue wave, right? If 50 votes with a tiebreak vote in the Senate and with a couple of moderate senators, one, one has to presume they can't do anything that's particularly crazy. But there's, you know, there's a there's a populist movement on both the right and the left come after the big tech companies and, and as, as well as to print a lot of money and as well as to, you know, the, I think the vision right now in our country for, for the future is, is there's an optimistic side of it and there's a cynical side of it. And, and the, you know, the market kind of sum, sums up, bottom up, these two different visions. And, you know, I, I, I think what we've made story in the last six months is that people have realized there's an optimistic side of what's going to happen in the next 10 years. And there's a, there's a possibility of a roaring 20s, but there's, there's going to be, in the meantime, some regulation. And which version of it do you see? Is it, is it going to be the I, roaring 20s? And how are you setting yourself up in terms of making investments, therefore? Well, the, the, you know, the, the big question at the end of the day in, in, in markets and, and, and innovation is really total factor productivity. It's, it's how much productivity growth are we going to have over the next 10 or 20 years? And that, that kind of filters into everything else. And it's been very interesting the last 20 years, you've seen productivity growth has been really slow. A lot of us think that's because the consumer tech stocks, you know, that's not really captured entertainment, uh, better content, that doesn't really get captured in productivity. The big waves in tech right now, they're not consumer, they're the renaissance in biology, which of course we're seeing with the vaccine. There's new types of logistics, healthcare, you know, stuff going on with finance and energy. Uh, there's all this cool stuff happening. We're starting to see now even an infrastructure with things like the Boring Company. So I mean, these are all advances that do get captured in productivity. And it's, it's, very, it's very clear as a lot of this is working, as we see our society shifting in these areas, that you can't have higher productivity growth. So if we don't break the markets, I'm very optimistic we're going to get some really great returns in the next 10 years. A lot of the tech stocks in the public markets have obviously done quite well. Uh, let's show you Palantir, which, uh, as you know so very well as a co-founder, has uh, been on a remarkable ride since it's uh, joined the public markets. Uh, is this when you look at the valuation of a Palantir or, by the way, when you look even the valuation of some of the big fang stocks today, do you, do you say the next 12 months higher, lower? Do you feel like there's a, a, a frenzy here or not? <laughs> Andrew, I'll be honest, everything I do is over a three to five year period. I, if I could tell you what's going to happen over 12 months, I'd, be, I'd, I'd probably be a lot richer. But the, the thing the market seems to realize about Palantir is that it does have some of the very best technologists in the world. The big, the big trend that's happening with that company, by the way, right now in the last even several months is rather than only selling these full, really big solutions to come in and replace everything for a CIO, they're actually being able to break up their, their, their technology and sell it as enterprise software. So you have some of the very best information infrastructure in the world. You have, you have big, big companies for the first time buying pieces of Palantir as, as enterprise technology for a lot of money. That, that's a really bullish sign. Okay, so I won't ask you about 12 months, but how about three to five years out for Wish? Uh, that stock has actually uh, had a bit of a more challenging ride since it's, uh, it, since it's gone public. I, I'm, I'm extremely bullish on Wish over that time period. The, the, you know, Wish was never really very well understood by venture capitalists who turned it down at the beginning. There's now 100 million people using it. To buy goods. The big question in these areas of technology is how are you doing something that's newly possible uh, that was not possible before? And Wish figured out like the very best possible way of doing mobile commerce. They're the, they're the third biggest general e-commerce company with the third most consumers in the U.S. using it. And there's, there's just all sorts of cool things that they're doing. I think people don't understand the mom and pop strategy. They're actually empowering tens of thousands of mom and pops for their logistics network. It's going to turn to hundreds of thousands. And so that's a unique network. It'll be a bigger footprint than Walmart in terms of square foot, people picking things up. They're, they're clearly much, much better data team than everybody else. Uh, there's just all sorts of moats in that business and how they deal with the merchants all around the world. 
so, so yeah, I think people just, the market does not understand the Wish platform at all. And that's, that's one of the, the things that's most mispriced in my, in my view. Fascinating. Uh, Joe, it's a longer conversation. We love talking to you and we hope to uh, talk to you again very, very soon. Thanks. Thanks, Andrew. Take care. Next on Squawk Pod, what's in your coffee? Investors like Oprah and Blackstone are betting that it might not be traditional milk. So much so that vegan brand Oatly is gearing up for an IPO. Are we convinced, by the way, that oat milk is really milk? I mean, this is sort of like almond milk. Is that really milk? You're listening to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Becky. Vegan milk brand Oatly is planning an IPO this year that could reportedly raise a billion dollars. It's just one of many new potential offerings in the pipeline for 2021. Leslie Picker joins us right now. She's got more on that front. Good morning, Leslie. Hey, good morning, Becky. And that's right. I'm hearing from three sources that Oatly is looking for multiples of its $2 billion valuation it received just last July. The company is backed by Oprah and Blackstone, among others. And it fits into this trendy ESG investing thesis, which has helped propel the likes of companies such as Beyond Meat and Tesla over the last few years. So while billions for oat milk may sound like a lot, the company's newly hired underwriters are bank on investors paying up. Now, Oatly's IPO will be several months away at least, but other deals are more imminent. I'm told that the Q1 calendar is jam-packed for listings with CEOs who are planning for deals later in the year, moving them up earlier out of fear that that window might close. Now, a firm set terms yesterday for a billion-dollar IPO. That is expected to debut in the middle of next week. Sources say that Petco, Poshmark, and Playtica are expected to also launch soon, as is Qualtrics. SPACs haven't slowed down either. Many more of these blank check vehicles that raise capital from the public markets to fund an acquisition, including that from SoftBank, is set to debut uh, within a week, guys. Hey, Leslie, uh, oat milk has actually made its way into our house in the last <laughs> six months or so. Mine Not because I'm drinking it, but the teenagers are. <laughs> but what, what's the bull case for it? What's the bear case for investing in Oatly? You, you hit the bull case right there. Uh, Karen Feinerman, actually, on Fast Money last night, also said that her kids had stocked their fridge with oat milk, that it really plays into this younger demographic. A lot of people uh, are kind of getting on onto this trend and uh, have been drinking it more. Uh, so the bull case fits into, you know, a younger demographic, a younger purchasing uh, power for oat milk. Also that ESG thesis that I mentioned, the fact that people have been putting money into companies that they view as being sustainable, good for the environment, good socially. Oatly kind of fits into that thesis for a lot of people. The bear case is is the moat for this company. It's It's not that difficult to make oat milk. There are other companies that do it. Oatly does have other products. They have yogurt. They have ice cream. Uh, but I think that the power here for them is really going to be the brand and, and what they can establish. And going public is something that a lot of people pursue in order to kind of differentiate themselves from their competitors. They keep telling me what cow's milk is to try and turn me off, but it's probably a little too late for me. <laughs> Leslie, thank you. We'll thank see you. you soon. Thanks, Becky. Are we convinced, by the way, that, that oat milk is really milk? I mean, this is sort of like almond milk. Is that really milk? Anyway, yeah, I think milk. it's Same a longer question, discussion. Right? It's like almond stuff we, we, with water. I think we have yeah, to have a real, a, the, we need to do a segment, have a real debate about what real milk is these say, days. Yeah. Yes. Well, they, they, the same thing with beef. The beef industry is up in arms about them calling it uh, meat if it's not meat. So there, there, like there are some trademark Kinda issues, cool. some... I mean, if we will get better and better, too. But think of it as almost as alchemy. What if you could chemically synthesize something that's that's identical to, to me? I mean, that's what we're trying to do, obviously, or, or milk. Yeah. If you really want to 
you know, for a lot of reasons, if, if you want to. not quite there yet. No, we're not. But, and it is like yeah. modern day alchemy, uh, almost. I don't, do you, do you guys drink a lot of milk? It's a coffee, it's for coffee. That's really the only time. In my coffee. Yeah, that's about it, but they, isn't it? You know, our younger kids, I've got them drinking. They need the vitamin D. They, you know, yep. you want to be good for the calcium, for the things that go on. And that does concern me. Are, are the older kids getting enough calcium? So I, dude, I don't know. We're trying to figure the, it out. The, the dude loves his white Russian. I mean, it, it, you got to use some milk for that or, or, or cream. <laughs> yeah. Glue and milk. Or, or something like uh, something like that. What else? What else? We don't need. Oh, if I let myself go. Like Vodka Seinfeld, too, I think. cereal. I'd have, cere- I'd have cereal three meals a day. Yes. I would. I'd pick a different uh, one. Uh, that's all of true. The, right? And that, that I'd use milk. But you can't. You can't do that. You really can't. It's empty calories, Andrew. We've got to stick with the uh, kale chips. And we've got a little uh, news of our own right here. Uh, breaking news. We want to wish Joe Kernan a very happy birthday this morning. Joe, you know, um, we have... I got you a little present. Actually, as the show has been going on, I got you. It's not even really a present. It's like apparently I think I owe you. We've made a couple of bets throughout the year, usually over tacos. So I thought I'd make good on the tacos. I think <laughs> Mac hopefully has the tacos. That's I ordered great. it through Postmates, just acquired by Uber. Or Uber Taco Eats. Bell? Uh, I couldn't get Taco Bell because they're not open Doesn't right matter. now in New York Worst City. Worst taco is great. Thank you, so, Andrew. So Thank I, you. So I had to do nachos. There's some nachos and guac in there and some burritos in there. Uh, the, the good <laughs> folks at Ho, uh, Jose's Burritos on First Avenue. That's where we had to get it because nobody else is, is, is open at this hour. But I want to wish you a very happy birthday. I, turning 35 is a big milestone for you, it I is. know. It is the new and, 35. Uh, you know what I was going to uh, do? You're doing great. Given the news backdrop, I was, I was going to kid around a little bit with you and say, you know, Andrew, I don't really think I asked for my birthday for Chuck Schumer as majority leader. I don't remember uh, actually saying that to you, but uh, it really, um, you shouldn't have. I, really, you shouldn't have. You know, uh, uh, <laughs> oh God. this is, God this is, is your God birthday, is and there's, there's going to be God no gloating funny, on your birthday. God We're, works in some funny ways. Happy birthday, Joe. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, God. Uh, anyway. Well, enjoy the burritos. <laughs> thank you, Andrew. That's fun. I, you know what? Happy the birthday, worst? Joe. I didn't get you. you anything, but I did the, wish you happy birthday You give early. me things every day, Becky. Just, just being, working with you oh, and working with you. both of you is, uh, is what, you know what? Counting a lot of blessings today. And, uh, you know, you see what real priorities are. Should. And I'm very, very happy with everything. Yeah. Everyone was nice on Twitter. I want to thank, uh, thank you guys, too. And thank, happy thank birthday. The NASDAQ. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Oh, good. Happy thank birthday. you. Marilyn, thank you. <laughs> And that's Squawk Pod. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by today's birthday boy, Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you're listening right now. And make this a 2021 resolution. Share the word about this podcast. Leave us a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts. It only takes a second. Send us a tweet at Squawk CNBC. Send a pod to a friend who might be interested, and we'll meet all of you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.